Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? Welcome to the Paul Leslie Hour. This time around, we have an interview with a woman named Rhonda Coulet. This originally broadcast on the radio in Charleston, South Carolina, on WOHM 96.3 FM, on the Paul Leslie Hour radio version. It's a very interesting interview. If you want a little more information about her, you can visit runawaybeautyqueen.com. She's a singer, songwriter, a lot of interesting people that she intersected with through the years. Everyone from John Belushi to Meatloaf, Jimmy Buffett. In fact, for those of you that have the Jimmy Buffett album, Riddles in the Sand, she wrote the song Bigger Than the Both of Us. She's been a backup singer for Jimmy Buffett, for Meatloaf. She produced this play. It's called Runaway Beauty Queen, which is based on her early experiences. She represented the University of Arkansas in the Miss Arkansas competition, which she won. And, as you may have guessed, you could say in so many words, she ran away. Rhonda Coulet is a very cool person. I hope I meet her in person someday. And for those of you who missed the radio broadcast, I'm sharing it with you here on the podcast. I hope you enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest is Rhonda Coulet. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Paul. So, I kind of want to go back a little bit. Okay. What would you say you were like as a child? As a child, I was a tomboy, and I was very high energy. I was also very shy until I realized that I could stand on the stage and sing. (laughs) And I think that happened in the second grade. I was shy at home, and then once I got into school and I saw that they were having a little Christmas show in the second grade, I volunteered for every song, and my mother was very embarrassed because they were kind of shy. I was a farm kid. Both of my parents were from dirt farmers in Arkansas, and so we had moved uh, into town, to Spring Hill, Louisiana, to the International Paper Company where my dad got a job, and so, you know, I was I was like a little country kid, and then all of a sudden I met civilization, so... I was playing piano from five on, so I've always played piano, so I suddenly realized, oh, well, I can also sing. And But I was kind of a free spirit, I guess you would say. Have you always been extroverted? I didn't become extroverted, like I say, until second grade, and I think I really didn't become extroverted until I was 11, because we moved to a new town, and my dad got a bigger job with a paper company in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, so we moved to from a town of 10,000 people to a town of 35,000 people, and I thought, okay, now I can start all over. I can pretend to be somebody else, and so I decided that I wouldn't be shy, and that I would, uh, I would come out of my shell, and I would volunteer and do everything, and that's what I did. So from that point on, I was no longer uh, an introvert. I became extroverted, which I understand is the case with a lot of performers. From that point on, I, I showed off. <laughs> You've done so many things from being a singer, a songwriter, a playwright. What would you say is the category that you would most put yourself in? Brave. <laughs> because I basically 
would would learn one discipline uh, like piano, and then I thought then I'd get bored, and I want to add voice. I added voice, started studying that when I was fourteen. I grew up during the time when when women uh, in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, you couldn't play sports. Basically, uh, you could be a cheerleader, which I was, but then. Unless you wanted to be a singer or something on stage, you you were going to be a wife and a mother or a secretary for the rest of your life. So I decided early on that that was not going to be my path. And so I decided that I had better be brave and that I would try anything new that came along. And so I got into beauty pageants, unfortunately for me, because I was really way too much of a tomboy to enjoy all of those chains of femininity, I call them. So I, I ended up going to the Miss America pageant, but then after I got home, I resigned after a month because I couldn't stand it. I hated every minute of it, and uh, so I resigned and ran away and uh, caused a huge stir in the state of Arkansas in 1965. So I was brave, and I thought, well, I'm not going to stay here and do this. This is just too boring, and so I tried to join the Peace Corps. They wouldn't take me in New York. We, my boyfriend drove me to New York to try to join the Peace Corps, and they simply wouldn't take me, so I had to go back to Arkansas. And then I thought, all right, I'm 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 not staying here. And uh, I ended up going to Hollywood, and I didn't know what I was going to do, but I saw an advertisement for auditions for the first Love Rock musical, rock and roll Love Rock musical, basically. And I went and auditioned for Hair, and... Um, Again, I, that was very brave because I didn't really even know what a hippie was, but I discovered that I was one. I got into the original company of hair in Los Angeles and was the first person to volunteer for the nude scene, and I was off and running. <laughs> wow. Quite a journey. Yeah. And two, within two years there, I switched. Uh, I did a huge turnaround, 360-degree turn from uh, Miss America to uh, the stage of hair in Los Angeles, and I never looked back. When you were doing the pageant thing, mm-hmm. what are your memories from that? What was that experience like? I'll never know what it is to be in a pageant. <laughs> Lucky you. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I Basically, my strongest negative memory is walking down a huge, long runway in front of 10,000 people in a white swimsuit and white high heels and having to turn around at the end <laughs> and walk back. That was the worst part of all, was somebody studying your backside for, for that long a walk in a swimsuit. That I really hated. And I was just uncomfortable for the whole thing because there's nothing worse than 50, at the time 48, I guess there was 40 nice girls competing for the nicest girl. I was very um, outspoken and... I wasn't the nicest girl there, and I I hated that competition. I wanted to sing, and I I didn't do well in my talent number. I, I sang much more from the Fantastics, which was a Robert Streisand song, and I didn't do very well because I accidentally picked up the top layer of my dress and uh, exposed this white girdle I was wearing because <laughs> I had gained five pounds in Atlantic City on the way there, and so I was wearing this girdle to hold my thighs in, and lo and behold, I accidentally picked up the dress and showed my girl. So that didn't go over very well. So I was doomed to lose. <laughs> Let's put it that way. I hated it. I really hated it. And the absolute worst part, which people never think through, is when you get home, you have to spend a year that way. I thought, you mean I'm going to have to spend a year as Miss Arkansas? 
And I was in college. I was trying to go to the University of Arkansas, uh, studying music, and I realized I wouldn't really have time to really do that. I was going to have to go to men's clubs, lions clubs, and Kiwanis clubs, and the JCs, and perform all the time. So that just wasn't going to stand. So I resigned, and I was done. So you didn't miss a thing. Why do you think most women get involved in pageants? Well, they don't know what else to do to be on stage. You know, or they don't have parents who teach them how to play an instrument or something, you know, that they could be in the theater or something more positive that they could do without competing with their bodies and their looks. That's my opinion anyway. And there was nothing, there was no other place to be on stage in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. You could be the cheerleader or you could be in a beauty pageant. That was it. So I think that culture still exists in large portions of America. I also have a theory about it, <laughs> which goes back to the origins of it all, I think. It started with the court in England, the, being part of the court and wearing a long gown and being the queen, sort of juxtaposed in America with going to the county fair and uh, being the prize heifer <laughs> at the county fair. Hmm. Because I, I grew up with that, you know, and I thought here these two things converge beautifully here, the being the Queen of England and the uh, prize heifer. So, there you go. Is beauty important? Real beauty is important, yes. Beauty of spirit is very important. And I think if you have a beautiful spirit, that you're beautiful no matter what. Truth is beauty, and beauty is truth. That's what Yates says. Wow. And that's, that's uh, the truth, you know. Truth is beauty, to me. I mean, I love beautiful women, I love beautiful men, I love to look at them, but we can't get caught up in that, because it's not going to last, you know? It's just not going to last. Do you think that the way that society has kind of gone into this, like when you think of, and I'm not picking on her or anything, but like these certain celebrities that are known for taking so many photos of themselves, and with social media today, anybody can just broadcast images of themselves all the time. Do you think we're kind of becoming a more superficial society? Kind of? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I would uh, use a more profound adjective. I think we, we're definitely becoming more superficial. I mean, Marshall McLuhan said it. The medium is the message. And he said eventually, someday everybody will want, want their own uh, 15 seconds of fame. And that's what's happened. You know, I don't, all little kids want to be a star. They all want to be a star. Because that's what they see all the time. We don't have a lot to encourage deep thought and meditation in our culture. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the mm-hmm. truth. I read that after the, the after you had resigned, you kind of disappeared. Uh, well, that's what that's what people who live in Arkansas think. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> well, I did disappear. Yeah, I caused quite. I disappeared for two weeks. I didn't know where I was, and I uh, it was a big news story. And uh, Johnny Carson, they sent me a ticket to come to New York to be on the Johnny Carson show and talk about why I'd resigned the Miss America scene and. Uh, I went there, and then at the last minute, they didn't approve me being on because NBC was going to pick up the Miss America pageant the next year, and so they, the legal department would not approve me saying anything negative about it, which I didn't really plan to say anything horribly negative about it, but at any rate, it was a lot of fun to go to New York City. You know, it sort of gave me a taste of what it was like to not be in Arkansas, so it was a beautiful thing for me. Of all the places that you have visited all the places you've been, what place would you say is the the closest to your heart? Where I am right now. 
I'm in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. I'm on top of a mountain, Kennedy Hill, and I can see about 100 miles from my front porch. I'm looking out my window here, and it's uh, absolutely a place for contemplation and meditation and writing music. And this is where I've written most of the music uh, that I've written and where I find peace. And also commune uh, with my ancestors in Arkansas and remember what it's like. I have, in, in a sense, two energies that I that I try to bring together when I'm on stage. I try to always remember that I'm a farm kid and to bring that peace and that uh, understanding that I learned from my grandmother uh, to wherever I am. And, uh, you know, I haven't lost my southern accent, so they immediately suspect that there might be more than a a career person. So this is my favorite spot, and I come here uh, whenever I can. I have an apartment in Manhattan now. I just moved back to New York about a year and a half ago. But I was living here straight, straight through for three years. I sort of uh, took a spiritual retreat and uh, came up here to readdress what I wanted to do in these later years of my life, and I I decided that I wanted to move back to New York City. Well, I was just going to say I wanted to do both at the same time, which I used to do when I first moved to Manhattan. I always came here to write, and then I'd go back to my apartment, and at a certain point, I got tired of living in Manhattan, and I wanted to just be in a a more natural surrounding for a while. But now now I got tired of that, and I'm ready to uh, go back to the big city and and feel that energy again, and especially, you know, since 9-11 and all the things that have happened in the last 10 years or so has, you know, inspired me to go back and try to make the world a better place. Why do you write songs? To understand life, because I don't really understand life unless I'm channeling words and melodies and from from some other place that's much more spiritual and uh, higher consciousness than I am. And so that's how I learn how I feel and uh, what I should do and what life's all about. Is there a song of yours that you are especially proud of or the song that maybe you identify with the most? Well, I guess, you know, I'm 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 the kind of artist that's like what I'm doing today. <laughs> is the thing that I identify with the most because I've traveled. Music has sort of been my my guide and, and escorted me through every phase of my life. So right now, I would say uh, the song that best represents how I feel right now is a song uh, in a musical that I'm trying to get produced in New York, which is called My Song is Your Song, or Our Song is Your Song. There's a, another version of it, but it's basically a song written for seven women, which the chorus is, Our Song is Your Song. The lyrics are, Our Song is Your Song, Our Home is Your Home, Let Us Take You to the Pleiades. Someday you'll find us, someday we'll find you, and make you a heavenly body, fly away with you. And so to me, it is the, um, it's the message of women to the world, and it's from these um, the goddesses of the Pleiades, who are trying to inspire women uh, in the show to listen to their higher selves, to listen to their spiritual selves, to listen to the mother uh, within each woman uh, as the true path to achieving power and equal power on the planet 
it has to come, in other words, through a spiritual connection as opposed to a political connection. And um, it's so funny because I just heard Roseanne Barr, of all people, saying that same thing on uh, Charlie Rose. And it's just really, a, you know, women have to learn how to be powerful in a profound way, you know, in, in the in the way that Martin Luther King was powerful or in the way, you know, that Gandhi was powerful or or Mother Teresa, we, that, that's true power. And we're still struggling, you know, uh, and, and trying to do it, not in our own way, but in the way that, that men have taught us to do it. And it doesn't work for women. <laughs> it just doesn't work. So at any rate, that song, it's, it's a long, involved song about the myth of the Pleiades and who the goddesses of the Pleiades were and the, the seven sisters, they're called. So that's the song that I love the best right now because it it sort of sums up all of the lessons that I've learned through life. What are your recollections of the time that you spent with the National Lampoon radio show? Yeah, I knew you were going to ask me that that question next. I just knew that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I knew that, but I knew it. My recollections, well, that was the first thing I did in New York City when I I basically, uh, after I was in hair in Los Angeles, I became the choreographer for hair for about 10 different companies here in America and in Europe. I ended up in Europe and hair all over the world, basically. And then I decided I, I had to come home to New York City, finally go to New York City and, and try to be an actress. And so I was there for about six months and I was just scared to death. It was just an overpowering city. I'd been in L.A. and I'd been in Europe, but it's not the same as New York City. And Meatloaf was a friend of mine, and my husband and I, I got married somewhere in there, and we stayed with him when I first moved there, but then I wouldn't go audition for anything, and one day he called me, and he said, you know, Rhonda, they're auditioning, uh, the National Lampoon is auditioning for this show called Lemmings, and I think you should go audition for it, and I said, oh, I don't want to do comedy. See, that's before people really knew what improvisational comedy really was. That was before the big explosion of SNL and all of that, so... And he said, "Oh, you're just chicken. You don't want. You're just scared to go. They want. They just want you to do rock and roll impressions." And I said, "Well, I can't do any rock and roll artists. I don't know anybody that I can even do." And he says, "Ah, oh, you're just chicken." And he hung up on me. And I sat there and stewed about it all day long. And finally, I I got a Joni Mitchell album and I listened to uh, radio. When you turn me on, I'm a radio. And I went in and did an impression that afternoon of Joni Mitchell. And John Belushi was going to direct. We were going to go on the road, and John was going to be, it was at the village gate at that time, and I was going to start working there, but we were going to go on the road for six months. And I was going to replace the two women who were in it there, and John was directing. And so he hired me, and we had so much fun. That's all I can say. I went on the road with him, with Chevy Chase, with Billy Murray joined later on, and Chris Guest. I mean, we... I was the only girl, and I hardly ever said a word. I laughed so hard most of the time. They were just the funniest group of people to be out on the road with. We flew to every show, and uh, we didn't have to take buses or anything like that. And it was, I didn't even know what I was doing. I didn't even, I just did whatever they told me to do. I was the straight person, or I finally really learned how to improvise and to and to be a comedian. But I didn't know when I I got in, you know. (laughs) So... And then we ended up recording a lot of that stuff for uh, National Lampoon uh, albums. And it was very naughty and very uh, out there, as we all know. But for some reason, it didn't bother me at all. I didn't even think twice about it. I'd been in hair, and 
so I'd been broken in, and uh, I was willing to do anything or say anything. Just like I said, bravery will get you a lot, you know. That's my recollection. And uh, the funniest thing that I ever saw John and Chevy do uh, was when we'd be out on the road, they would invite me down to their room, and they would do their impression of the underwear ads from Montgomery Ward, those old catalogs. Do you remember those catalogs? Where, or even in some of the modern day catalogs, where they're like they're, they've got on their shorts, their underwear, but they're holding books in their hands. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And they're going off to college, but they're they just happen to have their glasses on and they have their pens and their books, but they're standing there in their underwear. <laughs> that was the funniest thing that I ever saw them do. So, what was John Belushi like? A sweetheart, very sweet person, very kind of shy, really. You know. I mean, uh, very thoughtful, not uh, that bombastic, bluto, outgoing, outrageous, acting out person that you saw on stage. He read the newspaper from cover to cover every morning, very politically astute, very smart, and kind of shy, you know, a little bit shy. His wife is still my best friend, Judy Belushi, and I are still very, very close friends. And you met her through him? I did, yeah. I sure did. And she was the only girl around for a while. John really thought we should be friends and we could be good friends, and he was really right about that. And uh, so she just produced my show out on Martha's Vineyard with the Martha's Vineyard Playhouse. She and I remained very, very close, sharing the same spiritual path quite often. I think the world of her. I was hoping you could tell us about the song that you performed, the the West Heaven song, which was like a tribute to Belushi. Well, when he died, that was a, one of the most depressing things that's ever happened to all of us, because that was back when everybody was sort of under the illusion that cocaine would not kill you. <laughs> and we had read the cocaine papers that Freud wrote, giving cocaine to his friend, and we were, we were just thinking, oh, well, this is not nearly as bad as acid, you know. This is going to be okay. And John was one of the first people that we lost, and it was really, really, really a dire moment in life. And, you know, I thought about it because I was so close to Judy. I I thought about it for months. I thought, I want to do something to honor him. I don't know. I don't really know what to do. Dare I write a song? Dare I try to capture what losing him has meant not only to me but to the people around me and so again i was brave and i i did it took me six months to play it for her i was so nervous about playing it for her. but she came over and sat in my apartment and we we lived close together always down in the village and by that time i'd lived to soho but i invited her to come down and we sat in my bedroom at, and me at the piano and i played it for her and then we cried and cried and cried and she said, I want to do a video to that. We're going to do that. We're going to, we're going to do a video to honor him with that song. And uh, we did. And it was on SNL. I guess it was about six months after he died. And it was a very profound experience, I have to say. I learned a lot from that because I'd already learned from the Miss America pageant to not pretend to be somebody you're not. The trap of fame and, you know, not being yourself. But I also learned again a second time, it's better not to get famous as somebody that you're really not, and that is a trap. And that was a trap for him. You know, we couldn't even go uh, and have dinner uh, in the village without people. Once they saw Animal House, 
without everybody relating to him as Bluto. And, you know, that's not fun. That's not a whole lot of fun if you're a serious actor and you're a serious film writer and all of that. You know, you want to move on. But um, he was proud of it at the same time, and I understand all that. But I learned, be true to yourself no matter what and, and try to not get caught in a role. Or in, or in any profession, for that matter. <laughs> hmm. I also was hoping you could tell us a little bit about Bill Murray. Well, I didn't work with Billy for a long time, but I, I was in the next National Lamp. I stood by in the next, for the next Lampoon show for Gilda Radner. And Billy and Brian Doyle Murray uh, were both in that show. And I went on for her uh, some and worked with him. And he was, he was a wonderful person. I actually met him when I was doing the original National Lampoon show in Chicago, and I, I remember uh, playing pool with him and thinking he was one of the funniest people I'd ever met. But you talk about a laid-back person. I mean, now there is somebody who's not gotten caught in any kind of uh, pretense of being somebody he's not. You know when you see Billy Murray that that's Billy Murray. <laughs> that is the real Billy Murray you're looking at. And I think he probably learned that, too, from uh, the loss of John. And that whole, you so you have to remember that John was one of the few people, I don't know if anybody's done it now, but had the number one film, the number one album, and the number one TV show in one week. Incredible. That, that is a, a, a large dose of fame, you know. Kind of jumping back a little bit, you used to, you were a roommate with Meatloaf, you said. I, my husband and I stayed in his apartment. He lived on West 72nd when, when we first moved to New York. But because I was choreographing hair after I was in it in Los Angeles, uh, Meatloaf was trying to get in the show there. And my husband was the stage manager. So we kept trying to figure out how to get him in the show in L.A. And then finally took him to Detroit to sing the lead song Aquarius and to be have a big role in the show in Detroit. So uh, I'm, I knew him very well. And... Uh, sang back up for him when he was trying to get his first record deal and uh, helped create those background vocals for Bet Out of Hell. And uh, I knew him quite well back then. And he actually took me in the recording studio and recorded 10 songs for me. And I was going to do an album and go on the road with him. But then he, his, uh, I don't know if you recall or not, but his second album didn't come out for a long time. <laughs> and he uh, lost his voice for a while there. And so things sort of fell by the wayside. But He's still a good friend. Hmm. Wow. Do Do you think? I, I hope this this question comes out right. <laughs> do, <laughs> yeah. Do you think that there's something perhaps magnetic about you? About me? Yeah. You You've. I mean, you've gotten a chance to meet a lot of very very interesting people. Well, that's true. I have. I think um, soulmates. You know, I believe in that. I think. I think they're my soulmates. And that um, even though I have not pursued the same kinds of things, you know, like after after the National Lampoon experience um, and everybody was scrambling uh, to get on SNL, I, wanted to, I decided I wanted to be a singer. I didn't want to do comedy. I wanted to be on Broadway. I wanted to sing and play the, a lead role in a Broadway show. That had been my, my lifelong dream. And so I didn't really see those people much anymore. I was, I think, at... I was actually rooming with Chevy Chase. My husband and I were staying with Chevy Chase when he got 
SNL, and within six months, I was playing the lead role in a Broadway show called The Robber Bridegroom that uh, Barry Bostwick was in with me, and I did the cast album. You can hear me singing on the cast album of The Robber Bridegroom, and so my career just took another 180 toward being a singer, and it was the first bluegrass musical on Broadway. They just had a revival of it uh, this past year at the Roundabout Theater in New York City. But so I was very proud of myself. I was in the first rock musical, and I was in the first country musical. And that's more exciting to me than uh, than being famous or being, uh, or being um, I don't know, making millions of dollars or whatever. I'm, I get bored quickly, and I want to go break some new ground creatively. So I would just say that those people that I've met along the way that we're magnetized to each other because we share the same desire to bring uh, new creations to the world, and uh, each in our different ways. But thank you for saying that. Perhaps I am magnetic. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking with Rhonda Coulet. There's a song that you wrote. It's called Bigger Than the Both of Us. Uh-huh. I was hoping you could tell us about that song, what inspired it, and just tell us about it. Well... I wrote that song driving back from my farm up here uh, on the New York Thruway, and I didn't have an instrument or anything. And I, I was—it's a three and a half hour drive, and it's a wonderful thought factory to be sitting in a car with nothing but just your voice and thoughts. And and the moon was right outside over my left shoulder the whole drive the full moon it was just it was just the most beautiful thing and um i had just gone through a breakup with a boyfriend and and i had gone through a divorce and i think it was just beginning to dawn on me that i was going to be alone from my life that the journey i had decided to take was um a spiritual one as opposed to uh, one romance after another and that's really what that song is about. Our souls are dancing infinity. It's, uh, it's bigger than the both of us. I think I've always been more uh, magnetized and attracted to uh, higher consciousness than I have been to a man. <laughs> I mean, not to say I don't love men. I do love men. But in the end, uh, whatever that calling has been for me has basically pulled me towards some new thing that caused my relationship to not last, and I never could quite put my finger on what that was, but there's a certain amount of agitation and uh, uh, constant, you know, negotiating and stuff that goes on in a relationship that I just I just don't really want to do. So I wanted to write music and be alone. I wanted to be alone. I want to be alone. So that's really, that, that's sort of, it was sort of my... I guess my offering to the cosmos that that I love all of those people that I'm no longer with. And, you know, it's funny because the song got recorded for that very same reason, because I was singing it. I, had a, I started a band in New York. It was an all-girls band called The Cows, and Judy was in it. As a matter of fact, uh, Belushi was in it. And we played uh, down on West Broadway in Soho, and Jane Buffett was invited to come to hear the band. And she heard me sing Bigger Than the Both of Us. And she and Jimmy Buffett had been separated for about seven years, but they had their divorce had not gone through. 
And so she heard that very romantic song, and she decided to uh, move to Nashville with Jimmy, and they would give it another shot. And sure enough, he recorded the song <laughs> for her, and uh, and I moved down there to Nashville because they were all moving down there, and so that was a pretty big life-changing song for me. Wow, I'll never yeah. I'll never look at that song the same way. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it you know, the way a song is written has very little to do uh, with what it inspires uh, the listener, how it inspires the listener, because we all come to it with our own experiences, and that's what art is, you know. Nobody sees the same thing in the same painting, so it's the same thing with the song. Mm. What did you think of Jimmy Buffett's recording of the song? I liked it. I thought it was great. He was nominated for a Grammy, actually. His vocal uh, was nominated for a Grammy on that. Did you ever hear my version of it? No, I never did. I have a version of it, but I'd be hard put to find it. (laughs) Yeah. It was recorded so long ago and not on great equipment, but I did a more ethereal version, let's put it that way, that I, of course, personally prefer. uh, And that was sort of my introduction to... The actually, I think it was Jimmy Buffett's introduction as well to the Nashville sound, and he didn't really stick with that sound. As a matter of fact, he didn't stay in Nashville. <laughs> hmm. He lasted about nine months in Nashville. I lived about a quarter mile from him because I thought he was out in the country somewhere. I thought, well, I'll rent a little country house close to them, you know. And by darn, he started a record label down there called Margaritaville Records, and he tried to go Nashville, but you know what? He isn't country. He's a Caribbean cowboy, so he went back to his roots, and eventually I went back to mine. So, uh, you know, I thought Tony Brown produced that, who was one of the better producers in in Nashville. But, you know, the Nashville sound is not not my thing. That's why I left. I didn't really. I'm far more ethereal than than that. Let's put it that way. So why? Why do you ask me that question? Why do I ask you what? I... Did you did you prefer it, or did you like it, or did it appeal to you? Oh, I, I liked his version of it. Yeah, it's the only it's the only version I've heard other than right. You know, well, I thought he did a. I tell you, I thought he did a good job of um, sort of countryfying some fairly um, uh, introspective lyrics. You know, indeed. I, mean, I don't. I wonder if the word infinity has ever been in another country song. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> And I had a ball doing that because Will Jennings wrote the other songs on uh, Riddles in the Sand is the name of the CD. Uh, he and Will Jennings wrote the other songs on there, and they're great. And hanging out with Will Jennings and Jimmy Buffett is, is a wonderful experience. And what about Jane Buffett? You mentioned her. What is she yeah. like? Oh, she's a wild South Carolina gal. She <laughs> is like a very high energy. She talks like that. You know, she's got a real South Carolina accent. And she's a fun and a wonderful person, a really wonderful person. And they, not only did they get back together down there, they had a baby. <laughs> they had a third baby. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a fun time. It was it was a great time. But then the theater was calling out to me. You know, I I I for some reason uh, I did a ten song set for quite a while down there, only to realize that I really missed using more imagination. Than, than just sitting with a with my keyboard and playing 10 songs in a row. I need more challenge than that. So I came back to New York. I got a call out of the blue to come back to New York and play the lead role in a show called Cowgirls, which was 
an all-female, off-Broadway musical about a classical trio called the Coghill Trio showing up at a country saloon. And uh, I played the country saloon owner, and uh, she thinks that they're the cowgirl trio, and they're actually a classical trio, the Coghill Trio. And it's all about me teaching these classical musicians to play country. And we played for a year off-Broadway. We had a ball. What would you say your greatest purpose is? My greatest purpose is to, I think, to empower women, to encourage and inspire women that they can do anything they want to do and and to not uh, let the rules stop them, to not let men stop them, to not let competition with other women stop them, to not let education stop you, to not let any kind of... uh, limitations that you might be able to conceive of stop you because you can learn anything and you can, you know, you just have to be brave enough to step out there and do it. And I taught myself all the skills now of how to write a Broadway show. I've had to learn practically everything to write everything for a Broadway show, you know. And so all of my life has been leading up to converging not only the skills that I need to do that, but to converge having a message. That's I consider important enough to do that. Whether anybody else does or not, who knows? But I, it's important enough for me to create a life's opus where I can share all the things I've learned with an audience. And especially my life lesson has been that I gave up a child for adoption after I was in the Miss America pageant. I got pregnant uh, with that kid I ran off with to join the Peace Corps. And I knew I wasn't getting married, and we were not going to be husband and wife, and I was not going to be a mother. So I gave the child away for adoption. And through the course of uh, the next 20 years, I told him that I would come find him at the end of the 20 years. And sure enough, I did. When he turned 21, I went looking for him, and I found him. And we have been best friends ever since. I now have a granddaughter who's seven years old, and my life's lesson has been that the loss that I felt from that was so deep during those 21 years of missing him and wondering what had happened to him, and that even though I was not a mother and using mothering skills and all of that, and my heart, I was still a mother thinking about him every day, and my musical is about just that thing of finding him after 21 years and that a woman's true power comes from not necessarily being a mother, but from the desire to nurture other people and this culture that we're in. And that's where that spiritual power that I was talking about when we started, I think, comes from for women. And somehow we lose that, you know, we forget that or we or we don't know how to transcribe it from taking care of our kids into the workplace or into being an artist or whatever. But that's the part that's missing and why um, we need women at the top and and we need 50% of our congressmen to be women and we need uh, 50% of the CEOs to be women. We need women to share leadership with men. Men need help, you know? (laughs) (laughs) They really do. They need some help. Indeed. And they don't know how to <laughs> give it, you know, they don't know how to give it to us either. We have to teach them. Mm. We have to show them. We have to show each other. And then we have to show men how to share that with us. And But, you know, that's something that you have to learn. We have to learn as women together how to do that. And you know, you know, aren't just born knowing that. 
So I would say that that has been, that's why I live alone. I've been alone now for 35 years, you know. I've had a few uh, relationships along the way, but I've lived pretty much alone for 35 years. And I've spent a lot of time meditating and a lot of time uh, looking at these things through a spiritual lens to try to be able to do it before I die, anyway. <laughs> and you don't get lonely? No. I no. don't get lonely. No, I don't. That's what meditation is all about. That's what a spiritual path is all about. You're never alone. Because universal love for your fellow man can always be fulfilled, even if you can't you know, watch TV with somebody at night, you know, <laughs> or go to bed with somebody at night, you can still share your life with lots of people. There's there's no reason to be lonely. I mean, you have to work at it. You have to accept the fact that you're alone, and you have to find that other path. That's, that's what being alone is all about, though. That's what writing music and writing lyrics and writing poetry and painting paintings, that's what art is all about, you know. William Blake said art is prayer, and that's what it is. So life is prayer. And so... If that's the case, and God is always with you and, you know, helping you and you have a purpose in life, then why should you feel alone? Hmm. You're not. All all the help is there that you need. And as a matter of fact, the song I'm working on right now, I've never written a spiritual, like a, a hardcore black spiritual, I would say, country church spiritual. I wrote one. I wrote one called Song of Joy that's on the American Secret CD, but uh, this one is called He's Always There. And I am, I am not just a Christian. I am a multi-spiritual multi, uh, soul. But I wrote a song for Christ. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but I, med- I do Hindu meditation, and I do Buddhist meditation, and I, I'm into the Sufis right now. And, you know, anything that brings us all together, I'm into, including uh, wine. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not alone, and I'm, I'm not lonely. I think when it's time, the time may come when this particular goal is finished that I want to be with somebody, you know, and I want to have constant companionship. And I just got a new kitty cat a year ago after not having one for 20 years, and that's been a huge, wonderful thing. So who knows? Maybe there's a, a man around the corner. <laughs> you never know. So on that note, what is the best thing about being Rhonda Coulee? The best thing about being Rhonda Coulee is I feel protected and guided. That's the best thing, so that if I screw up, it's not all my fault. <laughs> that I'm doing the best I can and that I have help from the angels and from all from all the people who love me and that I love and that I'm being guided toward what's next after this earthly sojourn. That's the best part. And I learned that from my grandmother, who uh, had a sixth grade education and uh, never lived anywhere but a farm, dirt farm in Arkansas, and died at 97 and was the happiest person I ever knew. And I wanted my whole life to have the wisdom and the joy that she had. And... um She's actually in my musical. Mama is her name, and I, I actually play her in my musical. So that is the best gift I, I had, is to see where true joy comes from. and That's the best part. Totally open-ended. Anyone yeah. listening in, what would you say to anyone listening in? 
believe in yourself. Be true to yourself. Because God dwells within you as you. My last question. Mm-hmm. Who is Rhonda Coulet? <laughs> she is a, a 70-year-old blonde grandmother. That's who she is. <laughs> <laughs> With a good sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is important. Yeah. Who was Paul Leslie? <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to answer that question. I'll, I'll interview you. <laughs> some other time. <laughs> yeah, some other time. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Oh, thank you. I, I, I appreciate had so much this. fun talking to you. I really have. I knew you would be a great interview. Oh, well, thank you, Paul. I appreciate you saying that. And it's, you're a great interviewer. It takes two to tango. Well, thank you for that. <laughs> All right. Absolutely. Okay. Runawaybeautyqueen.com. Okay. Excellent. Okay, darling. You take care. Thank you for listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. If you enjoy these interviews, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the podcast. You can help us by listening on the free Radio Public app. The show can also be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or Overcast. For more information, visit thepaulleslie.com or follow on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, all at The Paul Leslie. The Paul Leslie Hour theme song is performed and composed by Jeff Pike. Outro music is performed and composed by John Goodwin. See you next time on The Paul Leslie Hour. We'll be right back.